Misfit Toys. This episode is sponsored by Fisher Wallace Labs. The brain is an amazing electrical system. Why not treat it as such? Wearable brain stimulation technology from Fisher Wallace Labs is cleared by the FDA to treat depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Last year, they conducted a massive study on the effects of their device for people suffering from depression, which yielded statistically significant separation between active and placebo groups, as well as a high and rapid response rate and no significant adverse events reported by participants. In short, the treatment works, and it works quickly without risk of dependency or side effects. Treatment with Fisher-Wallace is easy. Simply use the device at home twice a day, 20 minutes each session. Most experience relief within two weeks without the potential side effects of prescription medication. Use the Fisher-Wallace device for up to 30 days and return it for a full refund if it's not a game changer. Go to fisherwallace.com and use the promo code HAPPY to save 10% on your purchase. That's fisherwallace.com, promo code HAPPY. Welcome to episode 636 with my guests, Ivy Ross and Susan Magsaman. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a, like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com, and mentalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow us at. Uh, I had an idea. I don't know, what do, you, uh, what do y'all think of this? But, you know, I've mentioned before that I feel like a, a broken record sometimes with the introduction to the show and sometimes the wrapping up of the show at the end, and I was thinking it might be fun to have listeners, uh, to create a survey where listeners can suggest, uh, and I think humorous would be good uh, as well, uh, ways to open the show and close the show, stuff for me to say. So I don't know. Your thoughts on that would be, uh, would be appreciated. Let's dive into a couple of surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves bulimic bipolar bear. And they write about their ADD. My brain is a soccer ball trying to reach the goal. New ideas hit me hard, sending me flying in a different direction until the next one hits. About their bulimia, like an inoperable brain tumor is constantly fighting for control over my body. When it wins, I feel relieved and disgusted. And about their bipolar too, I have a secret superpower that I cannot control. I'm either conquering the world or slowly being crushed by it. Wow, that is so, so eloquent. I'm either conquering the world or slowly being crushed by it. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, a non-binary person who calls themselves the increasing sunlight hurts my body, but winter makes me depressed. That's a, too, a little too long for a T-shirt, but at, that is in the, that is in the ballpark. Uh, what would you like to ask, Paul? What small things make you happy slash appreciate life at the moment or feel any other positive emotion? 
I love hearing about the, quote, little things, unquote. Thank you for asking that question. It's a great question. Sometimes I forget to share uh, my loves and and fears because I love when you guys do. I love when somebody shares loves or happy moments or uh, awful some moments on the on the podcast. Um, I would say uh, I love that feeling when I tackle my to-do list early in the day and I'm done by like two o'clock and then I can do the things that I really want to do, the things that I'm passionate about and I feel like an adult. Um, I love the feeling when I sit down to make music and I pull the keyboard over and plug my guitar in and put my headphones on and I, I just love the feeling of possibility that maybe after a couple of hours I'll have something that uh, I'm really proud of and that maybe moves people. Um, and by the way, I, oh, this is so hard to, to put out there, but a friend of mine suggested it, is if any of you are um, television or film producers uh, or you know somebody who is and you like my music, contact me because I would love to uh, license it. And oh, there is a part of me that is like, oh, well, look at us. Look at Mr. Full of himself. But that is one of my dreams, is to have some of my music licensed, or at least share it out there and have people share it. Um, I love, and this is, this is a memory that I just had, um, because it doesn't happen here in California, but it's kind of a cold spring day today, and it reminded me of that feeling when I was a kid on all the senses and smells when you would get that first day where it was maybe in the 50s or 60s in the Midwest. I'm from Chicago. And you would go play basketball in the driveway and you could smell the earth thawing out and you could smell the basketball. There's like a certain smell that basketballs have. And... Yeah, your fingers were cold and it was kind of hard to move around like you could when you're in the summer, but I don't know, there was a feeling like you've been let out of a weather prison and a kind of an excitement about it. I love after I ask for help and I don't feel like I was ignored and I felt like somebody heard me. Um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to describe, but and those of you that are regular listeners know that one of the things that I struggle with is asking for help with things. And it's kind of a terrible way to, to go through life because not only do you not get help, let me talk about me, not only do I not get help, but I don't give other pop people the opportunity to show me that they care about me by pitching in and helping me with something that I'm asking for. Because I always feel good when I help somebody else, but it never occurs to me when I'm asking for help that somebody might enjoy, might feel something other than being bothered by me. Uh, I love how Gracie's one of the ways that she, and I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but one of the ways that Gracie shows her excitement about something that's happening always has to do with shoes. 
when I put on my rollerblades to take her for a walk slash skate, whatever you want to call it, she will suddenly frantically look around and pick up a slipper or a shoe and toss it in the air as if to celebrate saying, I'm so, so a fan of what's happening with footwear right now. And she also does it when I'm in my bedroom and she's laying on the bed and I put socks on. She does this this little ritual that we have now where she snorts and she flips onto her back for me to pet her as if me putting on socks uh, necessitates uh, her her getting petted. But I love that, that both of these just have to do with shoes or things that are on my feet. Um, I love taking a nap and hearing rain outside. I love... When I have a, a car that's a, a hybrid, and I love when I pull into the driveway after driving somewhere, and I'm almost the battery is almost out. I don't know. There's there's something I love about that. I love. I have a couple of jade trees in my backyard, and when it's hot in the summer, they really suffer and they look like they're about to die. And I love when we get rain in the winter. And they grow these bright green cones uh, on top. And it's like, okay, they're thriving. I, I don't have to worry about them for at least another day. I love, after taking a really hot bath in Epsom salts, how my legs feel wobbly uh, when, I, when I get out of the bathtub. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of a feeling like, oh, I did that right. I stayed in there as long enough for my body to be helped. And, uh, and the fact that it's easier to sleep at night after, after doing that, and kind of a feeling of, hey, I took care of myself this last half hour. Uh, I love the feeling of taking a shot in hockey, and it, it's almost as if the puck weighs one-tenth of what it, actually weighs because it was perfectly balanced on the blade of the stick and my form was good and it just flies off effortlessly and harder than it normally would be. I just love that. I love a perfectly crafted joke, a joke that it's almost like a ball bearing. There's nothing extraneous on it. It's just perfect. It's it's been edited. The idea is clear and the words are the and the words have style. I love videos. One of the software I edit and make music on is a thing called Pro Tools. And I love when I see a video on YouTube of somebody giving me or, you know, the viewer a tip that then saves me time. I love when dogs lay their heads on pillows like they're a person. I love the curves of mid-century uh, furniture. It's... Uh, you get a feeling that there's no way it could have been made just by a machine that a human being had to have brought some craftsmanship to it. 
I love grateful people. I love the energy of people that are positive, not in a cheesy way, but in a, a way that feels real and grounded and, and, and positive because I, I think it's contagious. I love the feeling after cooking for myself and feeling, feeling like an adult and like I'm taking care of my body. And I love when somebody comes over to be a guest on the podcast and I open the door and Gracie runs out to greet them as if there's somebody that she knew from childhood and she can't wait to catch up. She, is, she gets so excited when people come over. It, it is, it's, it's so adorable and almost disturbing because it's like, I suppose there's a, there are a lot of dogs that are like that, but I don't know. It just, uh, I love seeing living things that are excited about life. I guess that's my way of saying it. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Visage. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Mean voices only really happen when I'm either tired or stressed or both. So I count myself lucky, but today is one of these days. So here comes the fucking circus. I am too old to learn anything new. I have missed, intentionally or not, every great opportunity I had to realize my dreams, and now it's too late. Talking about my dreams, they're either stupid or unrealistic, and I will never be able to realize them. I'm stuck in my job, in my relationships, in my apartment, in this country, in this life. I'm weak and scared and lazy, too scared to change what I don't like about my life, too weak to sustain these things and too lazy to act on my ideas. I am ugly and uninteresting. I will never find someone who loves me and wants to spend time with me. I will die alone with no family, no friends, no familiar and loved faces around me. I am so rigid and controlling that making bullet points is the only way I can clarify the mean thoughts in my head in the parentheses. I don't really hate it, though. I'm a petty, jealous person who cannot stand that other people are younger, prettier, more energetic, or clever, etc., etc., insert any positive adjective, and that is really sad for me. And then in the last thing she writes is, I guess this survey worked because I'm out of mean juice. Thank you, Paul. It was... That was some good mean juice you uh, you generated there. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those things. And this is the same survey filled out by a gender-fluid person. Uh, uh, they write, I identify as a gender-fluid woman. And um, I don't, well, I'm not sure what the pronoun would be. Would it be uh, they or she? Uh, well, uh, they slash she writes, uh, the call themselves soft. And... Um, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I am whole and home is within me. That no matter what legislation passes, I will persist. I will vote. I will move if I must. And if I can't, if something happens, I will die knowing that I lived my life in my truth and nothing and no one can take that away from me. My will is strong. That I know love in my heart and that love has been super queer, and that's who I am. 
that I don't need weed and cigarettes to survive. That being sober is the most radical thing you can be. But also that it's okay to need medication to survive. That I've made it through so much that I am alive! Exclamation point. Those were amazing. Thank you for those. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, this this month, the the theme is getting to know yourself, and uh, I think it's one of the most valuable things in life is uh, is self knowledge because we filter everything. We filter reality through. Uh, our perceptions about ourselves, other people, the world. And sometimes they are not either accurate or healthy for us. And one of the benefits I have discovered from years of therapy, and uh, in particular with my therapist Heidi at BetterHelp, is I don't always know everything that I think I know. Uh, If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mental and uh, make sure to include the slash mental part uh, so that they know you came from the podcast because uh, that's really that's important to the podcast this episode is sponsored by element element is an electrolyte drink mix with everything you need nothing you don't that means lots of salt and no sugar no sugar no coloring no artificial ingredients no gluten no fillers no bs Electrolytes are super important. Uh, They can help with cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness. And I have dealt with sleeplessness in the past, either because I sweat a lot when I exercise or because of the electrolyte loss from drinking really, really strong coffee. And since they've started sponsoring the podcast, I've been drinking 16 ounces of uh, their mix uh, before I go to bed, and it has helped me sleep. Right now, Element is offering you guys a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com mental. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to drinklmnt.com mental. Element offers no questions asked refunds. Try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You have nothing to lose. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Disaster Girl. And uh, she writes, I was lying in bed last night with my newborn son in my arms. My husband, who I adore, was sleeping next to me. I had had an amazing day where I got everything done on my to-do list, met a couple of new people, and had an enjoyable conversation with them, had a great therapy session, cooked a delicious meal, and relaxed on the couch watching my favorite shows. It was a really, really good day. I felt happy and alive and grateful. 
So naturally, I began to imagine that some maniac serial killer breaks into our apartment that night and murders me and my whole family. I then imagine that Netflix picks it up for a cheap rush documentary that spans way too many episodes to tell the story of my murder alongside other happy families who have been murdered. The documentary will, of course, feature photos and videos from my camera roll since it's Netflix and they're trying to do it cheaply. I then imagine the camera cutting to my mom who is devastated and blabbing about how I was a good daughter who didn't deserve to be murdered using cliches like, she was such a light in our lives. And then I imagine my dead self from purgatory, shaking my head because once again my mother will be seen by the world as a caring, loving, insane mother rather than the abusive, alcoholic, and narcissistic person that she is. And I imagine that I'll spend the afterlife being like, why is she still pulling one over on people? And I'll stay in purgatory as a result because I can't learn how to forgive her. And I'm more concerned with people not knowing the truth about her rather than the fact that my whole family has just been murdered by some maniac. I can't be the only one who does this, right? My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I am here with Ivy Ross and Susan Magsalman uh, you're the co-authors of a book called Your Brain on Art. Um, let me let me read the introduction to you guys because there's no way I could I could memorize this. Uh, Ivy Ross is the vice president for hardware at Google, where she leads a team that has created over 50 products, winning over 225 design awards. A national endowment for arts grant recipient was ninth on Fast Company's list of 100 Most Creative People in Business in 2019. Susan Magsaman is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at the Peterson Brain Science Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she is a faculty member in the Department of Neurology. She is also the co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint. Welcome, both of you. Um, Great to be here. Thanks. Could you possibly have a longer bio? No. Either of you. It's just my title. That's the bio. Have you thought of releasing your bios as books? Yes. <laughs> Our husbands say that we're actually four people. So yeah. We work as hard as four people. Yeah. Right? Uh, how did you meet? I was stalking Ivy on LinkedIn and she wrote me back. Yeah, because I would, I would get like 500 requests, but I saw the Arts and Mind Lab Having been an artist and into psychology and the brain, I'm like, wow, the combination of this, I have to check this out. So we arranged a 30-minute phone call, which lasted three hours, which turned into a salon at my house. Because basically Susan 
was able to tell me that neuroscience is now proving what I've always known intuitively as a creative, but I know the importance of being able to prove what you believe is true. And we held a salon with artists and scientists at my house, and that turned into a book. So cool. There's one of the greatest things about being alive is the happenstance, crossing of paths, and then it becomes somebody who's so important in your life. And even better than that, they bring out a part of you that maybe had been dormant. I mean, it's totally true. It's I mean, we it's almost five years now that we started our journey and we've been constantly learning and growing and, and bringing something, birthing something that we really think is super important for the world to hear. And who knew, right? You know, I was like, we have a luminary scholars group in my lab and I invited Ivy to be part of that. That's how, why I wrote her. And it's really turned out to be this true collaboration that has been phenomenal. Yeah, and I could have just kept going on LinkedIn and said, nope, yes. nope, nope, nope. Yeah. Curiosity. And so I looked back. Yeah, exactly. It was like you use your intuition. Nope, this one, yes. <laughs> and what was it uh, that you intuitively felt you knew about the relationship between uh, neuroscience and art? Well, that um, the act of making, and I started as a maker, I – I recognized what it had done. The connection between hands and mind gave me some um, level of self-knowledge and the ability to have an idea and manifest it and to express myself in different ways. And I'm someone that has gone through very much different mediums from being a metalsmith to now a designer. And I am happy and healthy and I'm very grateful for that. But if has always felt like to me, this is what we were designed to do. And so when Susan said, we're now discovering that we were wired for art, um, I was like, yes, you know, it's not something elitist or frivolous. It's something quite critical to our health and well-being. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I often feel like there are different muscles in our brains that can express something that verbally we can't express. And as we were talking about music before we started recording, you know, I can let go of certain parts of my brain through comedic creativity or doing mm-hmm. the podcast, but there is a sad muscle in my brain that I can only release through playing music. I can't put it into words, but I could say, here's how I'm feeling and play a song well, for we- somebody. And we've spoken to even people that work with children in coming out of war. And when there are no words for things, their ability, even children, to use drawing and images to tell their stories is phenomenal. So there are certain things that um, use different pathways to emerge. And it's so important that we understand all the tools in the toolbox. How long were you a metalsmith for? You know, about 10 years. And um, my work got in like 12 different museums around the world when really? I was 24. And I realized that the great gift of that was um, that I realized life is about a journey and not an end goal. Cause there were people who their whole life would say, if only my work mm-hmm. got in a museum and at 24, that happened to me. The ego trip lasted two weeks and then life was back to normal. And I said, you still got to get groceries. Yeah. And, (laughs) and life goes on. And I thought, what a great gift. Now I don't have to worry about that 
single um, holy grail, but that um, life is this exploratory journey. And as I like to say, I'm very curious, and that's where Susan and I totally, uh, we connect on many levels, but this uh, relentless curiosity about life and wanting to make connections is something embedded in both of us. So it gave me permission to be free to not worry about any end result, but to play a little more with the journey called life. Uh, the best. I, I, I think the greatest gift you can be born with is curiosity. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you're never bored. No. Exactly. No. It's why we're here, I think. Why we're yeah. embodied is to, is to um, seek that. Yeah. Yet, yet, interestingly, I think we're taught from a very young age, and I think society has sort of said – it's about productivity, and in some ways, curiosity has been kind of hammered out of us. You know, if by third grade, if kids aren't seen to be artistic, mm-hmm. they don't make art, you know, if they're not perceived that way. And I think one of the things we're talking about in our book is that, you know, it's really important to be curious, to have play, to really explore your sensory systems and your sensorial experiences, and to make and behold, because that's how we feel most alive. And I think that's something that, you know, we sometimes really have set aside at great cost to our physical and mental health. What do you, I'm just going to adjust your mic for a second. Um, what have you found with people whose relationship to creative arts is um, complicated by perfectionism, the fear of uh, it's not going to be perfect, it's not going to be good enough, I got to go lay down and take a nap because mm-hmm. I'm just so stressed out. Yeah, well, we're we're told that if you're not good at it, you shouldn't do it, right? That's a message that we hear over and over and over again. And then you have people that think they have to perform at a certain level. And the truth of the matter is you do not have to be good at the arts to have tremendous impact and significant outcomes. And I think if that's one message that we all can sort of on, take on inside, your brain, your emotional, on your brain, on your body, on your mm-hmm. on your behavior, your spirit, and, and every yeah, and mind, and so body, spirit, mind, body, yeah. spirit. Yeah. And so the more we sort of make, like I, I say, and I joke around this, but I can't sing, I can't dance, I've read a really bad poem. Um, I, you know, I'm really not um, good at anything artist-related, um, and I get tremendous pleasure and tremendous reward and really enhances my life by doing those things. And, um, it, and it's, it's just true. You know, I, it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to just make and create, and I'm an excellent beholder. I yeah. love a good musician. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, was there an arc to you being comfortable with your stuff not being quote unquote great? You know, I never cared. I never cared that I wasn't great at something because it was so much fun. Like I'm, I think I'm really funny, you know, yeah. so I'm kind of a com- comedian. <laughs> Nobody else thinks I'm funny, but it never, it, I have a sister who's a twin, a twin sister and she is an artist. And I think early on I knew that wasn't going to be my path because she was just so good at it. So instead, I went into nature. Um, I I created things to share my voice, and that gave me great satisfaction in the process. And so the end result for me was never important. Oh, my grandmother taught us how to knit and crochet and embroider, and and all those things. My mom taught us how to cook. I'm also a really bad cook. And what my mother and grandmother would do is sort of never like shun us and say oh, you made a mistake. My grandmother would lovingly undo what I did, pick up the stitch and bring me back to where I was and just say, here you go. And so I, I think I was lovingly taught that mistakes are okay. I bet, I bet that's huge in the formation of a brain. I think it is. It's not chastising or shaming. Right. I think we get shamed 
in ways that that externally nobody might see, but inside you go, okay, I'll never do that again. I'll, yeah. you know, I've, that I've again. read or talked to people where you know they were shamed for doing something creative, mm-hmm. and it shut down that part of themselves. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to tell a story that my husband's going to hate. I told. Um, so one night I had made this piece of collage and I brought it over like a, you know, like a gift. I said, look, I just made this. And my husband said, it looks like something a six-year-old made. And I I was so hurt. Like, 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 boom, you know, that feeling where you just go shut down. And so, you know, I had some wine and then I said, okay, all right, fine. So then the next day I brought over a piece of paper and pens and I said, you make a piece of art. I'm going to make a piece of art. And then we're going to talk about it. And my husband's like a really great guy, incredibly kind and loving. So he drew and I drew. And then I said, tell me what you drew. And he had drawn an eyeball with a spiral circle. And in the middle, there was a question mark. And I said, what is that? And he said, it's how I see science. He's a scientist. And he said, I never thought about this before. I never would have pictured this. But I just drew this. And it's, you know, he said, I'm always trying to see what's happening because I have a question. I'm very curious about an answer as a scientist. And I was like, it's amazing. And then I was shared what I drew, which was about curiosity, interestingly. And it helped me see a part of him that I wouldn't have known if he wouldn't have made this really crappy piece of art. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you feel like you both being curious people adds intimacy to your uh, even even though you didn't realize he was a curious person until then, but is there uh, some dynamic between the the two of you because um, th- there is that shared passion for knowledge and oh totally I mean we always talk about the marriage of arts and sciences you know we are truly that marriage of arts and sciences yin and yang um, but I have to tell you scientists are incredibly creative and incredibly curious. And I've always known he was that, but he never articulated his sort of philosophy about science. Um, but be, making a piece of art, a visual piece of art, Avi was alluding to this, sometimes you don't have words for what's happening to you. It could be trauma or stress or other kinds of issues that are happening in your life. And when you make a piece of art, you're able to symbolize and create metaphors and then you're able to come back and find words for it. Yeah. And I think sometimes this idea of not having words allows us the space to create and go deeper. And so I knew my husband deeply through that experience, deeper than I would have. Right. So I think there is that intimacy there as well. And I've seen that many, many times where people have created something and then shown it to me. And I wouldn't have understood it ever from words but I w- might have understood it in a song lyric or in a piece of visual art or in a dance piece or a spoken word piece that they needed to express themselves in the way they best express themselves. So let's talk about the the book, um, Your Brain on Art. You know, g- give me some, some takeaways, uh, some of the things you delve into in the book, uh, especially things that the general public might not be aware of. Yeah, no, we wrote this for the masses, first of all, to um, explain that art is not this um, hierarchical, untouchable thing. You know, in fact, we, the book, we, we interviewed 100 people, and we even went back to the indigenous tribes and um, realized that we were 
doing storytelling, dancing, singing, doing art in caves. And there was no word called art. And these were mm-hmm. the arts. And it was because we were just, that was culture. That was life. Yeah. And I think what's happened is we then um, decided to optimize for productivity and pushed all of these things aside and created a word called art, which it became precious. And thinking that this idea of optimizing for productivity would make us happy, and I think the experiment is failing because we're not. And so Susan and I really wanted to go back and look at um, what the arts can do. Again, you don't have to be good at it, but what is it doing? Because it's our, we're wired for art. We were created to have these sensorial expressive modes, as I said, tools in the toolbox that everyone can access, especially now with, my God, mental health being a bigger issue than even physical health. And these are things that are accessible to everyone. I mean, coming home, you know, really at the end of the day, if we could get people to do 20 minutes of an art activity, just like now we're convinced and we do do 20 minutes at least of exercise. And, you know, it was science that got us to understand how imperative exercise is. And we now understand how important sleep is. And so our real reason for doing this is to explain why people need to do at least 20 minutes of art a day for what we call whole health, which is this mind body health. And that's making and beholding, you know, and that could be singing in the shower or humming or doodling or, you know, aesthetic experiences like nature. And so it's being more mindful. We have this um, term we call the aesthetic mindset, which is to how are you more sort of aware of those surroundings and the way that you engage in the things that you do that really give you more meaning and more sense of purpose in, in your life. And so I think that's a really big takeaway also. And, and so that, kind of the through line of this is being present. Being aware. No. Yeah, yeah, no, at the yeah. end of the day, I mean, being aware of your the, the sensory things in your environment, smell, texture, color, which is what makes us feel alive. If you're in that state of being present, um, I mean, you are being present by just being in the aesthetic mindset. So, yes, that is definitely a big piece of it. But, you know, we are, and Jill Bolte-Taylor said this, feelings being, feeling beings that have learned how to think versus thinking beings that learned how to feel. And I think we think that we are thinking beings first, that once in a while feel. And the truth is we are feeling all the time. Our sensory systems are on high alert, but we're not conscious of that all the time. You know, we don't realize we're embodied and feeling. So these things we surround ourselves with, these aesthetics, these smells, these colors, our body is taking that in mm-hmm. all the time. And it, and it's not um, esoteric, right? It's not, oh, that's nice to have to be able to do art 20 minutes a day. What we've been able to, to, to sort of document and share is that our mental well-being increases, our ability to manage our day-to-day lives and to have you know, more regulation in terms of our mood and our sense of belonging and, um, and mental in terms of mental illness. We interviewed a guy named um, Brandon Staglin, and when he was going to college, he had a psychotic break, ultimately was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he was able ultimately to manage that with medication, but he felt deadened, you know, it was just like he lost his his sort of sense of, of engagement in the world. 
and he picked up the guitar and started playing the guitar and it made him feel alive. And in just that sense of meaning and purpose, he was able to then have what, you know, physicians call adherence, be able to take medication and still have a way to feel alive. So we, you know, PTSD, trauma, these art experiences aren't just like, oh, that's nice, but they can help manage your way through stress, through anxiety, through traumatic experiences. And I'm, you know, these are multiple art forms for different things. In physical health, we know that these experiences actually can help with managing chronic pain, for example. And then we talk a bit about the the role of art in building strong communities. And and then how do you flourish? You know, we don't want mental health is not the absence of disease, it's the ability to thrive. And so how do we do that? And I think we leave a lot on the table when we forget that these experiences make us feel most alive. And I think that's another really important take home. And we think we've gotten a little flatlined as a society, you know, and, and we really wanted to bring awareness about how important these sensory systems are and how easy it is to ignite them and how important it is to express ourselves um, whether it's through writing or singing or not, because we all have micro traumas. Mm-hmm. And so it's super important that we release them. How does art rewire the brain? So I'm sure you've read a little bit about this whole idea around neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's the one of the greatest things that we've discovered in medical science in the last 50 years. And it's that your brain is always changing and always growing. So the best way, the way I like to explain it is when you're born, you're born with over 100 billion neurons. And as you grow from a child through you creating these synaptic connections that ultimately create neural pathways. And so when you are having different types of experiences, you are literally changing your brain. You're at every moment, you're rewiring your brain. So every sensorial experience changes your brain, some for better some for worse, some for good, some for bad. And the more that you engage in these highly aesthetic, highly salient experiences, you're rewiring your brain to build resiliency, to build creativity, to build the ability to be able to navigate and decision-make and to create uh, self-regulation, all the things that are really important for us to be able to navigate the world. So these art experiences that come through your senses that create these really remarkable experiences ability to change your brain every day, every moment. And your brain only has so much room, so it prunes some of the older experiences. Mm -hmm. So one of the best ways, correct me Mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, but to almost move forward is to have these new experiences and get rid of and prune some of the the old experiences. Yeah, there's a a study that was done in the 60s by a a woman named Marion Diamond, and she was a neuroscientist who was the first person to be able to show structural brain changes in enriched environments. So she did this experiment. This was with rats where she had a highly enriched sensorial environment, novelty, surprise. Then she had a space that was a deprived environment and then kind of a middle ground space. And what she saw after just a couple of weeks was that the rats that were in this enriched environments grew their brains, their cerebral cortex, by 6% in just several weeks. And the the rats that were in the deprived space lost brain mass. And so think about that for us as humans. And now there's been studies that have been done with people showing 
the value of these incredibly rich environments to actually increase brain mass and increase neuroplasticity. That's extraordinary to me. And there's a lot of lessons that you can learn just by thinking through what, what are the implications of that in all the different places we move. Yeah, and it makes you think about solitary confinement, people sure that does. are in that for oh 10 God. years. I interviewed a guy who was in solitary confinement for, I think, eight years. Oh, my God. And I, I can't imagine torture what that what that does yeah to no, your, i mean to your it brain will shrink your brain i mean it's just we were talking about the other day prisons how they're not oh, a place to they're just it's all that's a whole other story yeah. yeah yeah but there are some great things happening in prisons um that you know when you change from being um about punishment to rehabilitation everything changes when you change that mindset and there's mm-hmm. some great things happening where prisoners are being using arts to really express themselves and also re-entry into the the outside world by creating narratives about what their world will look like so they're preparing to come into an outside world and it's remarkable results yeah because mm-hmm. many people who've been institutionalized lived a large portion of their lives in prison a lot of them would rather stay in mm-hmm. prison because they know it Yep. Yeah, the fear of the unknown, right? Especially as, you know, the last 10 years, how things have so dramatically changed. Totally understood, Stan. I agree. Uh, what is the potential of digital arts? I think there's... I know that's kind of a big question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, it's an important one, too. You know, we... We talk a bit about that. We have a we have a chapter called the Art of the Future, where we really look at some of these digital arts. Um, you know, one great example is in um, learning differences. There's some great work being done for ADHD using virtual reality and really using all of the benefits of highly enriched narrative and visuals and closed loop systems to help children be able to build attention and capacity and focus. And that's pretty extraordinary. Um, We've also seen really great work being done with um, things like immersive spaces where you're coming into a a painting and you're being surrounded by this painting. Um, I think it's a hybrid world. And, you know, we're in and out of these virtual spaces all the time. And having a sense of, uh, you know, digital literacy where when is it appropriate to be in that space and when is it appropriate to be like this in a one-on-one situation so I think it's going to continue to emerge. Yeah, we like to say it's not either or, it's and both. You know, some right. of the digital technologies have allowed us to uh, connect online and take art classes or to, mm-hmm. I mean, do some amazing things. There's also um, something called Snow World, right, in VR for uh, patients who have pain, where through a VR headset, um, you're in a igloo or Alaska scene and so these burn victims can have their bandages changed with no pain at all because what? your brain thinks that you are in the freezing cold. So by the, the, the fact that the digital world can put you there and alleviate the pain, and I think patients don't have to be on opioids. Or as right? much opioid, um, which wow. is a super important finding. That's amazing. So that's yeah. one huge advantage of when you want to kind of get out of the way and step into some of these other worlds where they can really work for you. Yeah. Uh, Anything else that you guys would like to share about the book or with the listeners? Uh, Maybe talk to the person who's, who's listening, who's like, where do I even begin Mm -hmm. to, you know, find something to try to do 
20 minutes a day. I'm super busy. I got kids. Uh, talk to that person. Well, I think the good news is that you can start where you are, and there are so many things that you're already doing that you may not be aware of. So if you took a typical day, you know, how do you sort of enter your day? You may wake up, you're going to make coffee, right? Smell the coffee, literally smell the coffee, hum in the shower, think about the way that you enter your world. For, for me, I'm a gardener. I always like to bring, you know, flowers and nature inside. Those are things that you can do very easily. You got to cook right? How do you really think about the things that you're making with your kids or by yourself? Those are really sort of very basic things that you, that you can do. Um, I think even we were, we were talking about things like film uh, or some of the, you know, things that people may watch. You know, you don't have to go to a museum. You don't have to go to the theater. You don't have to uh, go to a concert. There are ways that you can bring those kinds of storytelling, narrative, music into your home. Right? Listen to music while you're, um, you know, watching, watch, making dinner, or watching some of these really amazing programs that are really storytelling. So those are things that you can be aware of right now. And I think making is something that you can do pretty easily. Or just doodling. I mean, you know, the thing that we were slapped, we were slapped on the hand in school for doodling. Right. So even um, it's actually really good for your brain for focus. So even though if you're busy listening to something, just start drawing, doodle, stick figure, color, journaling. Yeah, journaling is another thing. Expressive writing. Just there's a great researcher in Texas that um, did some work around sharing a secret in writing. Even if you never tell it to anybody, rip mm. it up, burn it, throw it away, really relieves cognitive load. So. That's a very simple thing that you can do to just, just get write it out. The secret down. People, uh, part of the, the the podcast is people filling out surveys anonymously, <clears throat> and many of them will say, "I've never typed this out before. I've never shared this with another person." Mm. And at the end of it, there's a question: "How do you feel after writing this?" A lot of them are like, "I'm in tears. I've never, you know, f- f- said yeah. this aloud before." That doesn't surprise us because all the research shows that just getting it out. And that's why I think some of this expressive, whether it's expressive writing, just writing a secret down, saying the way you feel, drawing it, making a mark on a piece of paper. I mean, we interview um, a woman who started a company called Art to Ashes, where she took frontline firemen coming out of traumatic experiences and just had them start to put paint on canvas and just get all that out. And then they'd go home to their families and they could be present, whereas before it would... uh, create disaster at home. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea of instead of, you know, keeping things to ourselves, and in some ways we've been taught to repress our feelings and not share them. And I think that's where we get in trouble. And you don't even have to share. You could share it to yourself on a piece of paper. And to your point, it does remarkable things for your brain because otherwise we just keep carving neural pathways deeper and deeper, telling ourselves the same stories over and over again. Versus letting it go in some creative expression way or just writing it. Uh, The book is called Your Brain on Art, and it will be uh, released by the time this episode uh, comes out. Anything else you guys would like to share before we we wrap up? One thing I, I noticed about your podcast was that you do talk with a lot of people who are creatives. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say thank you to the creatives because during COVID, they were the front line, right? They're the ones that, that went on Zoom, that did podcasts, that helped us sing to a computer, mm-hmm. that made us dance on a computer, that helped us listen to beautiful music. So I just want to say thank you. 
Well, uh, I won't. Uh, I'll break the news to you that uh, we're narcissists and we did it for us. But, <laughs> but God bless you. Well, it works. I told you I'm a really good beholder. <laughs> I want to thank you because if, if us I'm narcissists didn't have an audience, we'd be fucked. Right. We're, we're <laughs> yin and yang. We are. It works. We are. It works. Thank we you need each other. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Many, many thanks to them. Uh, I love meeting new people. I'm always afraid to meet new people. I don't know why something in my nervous system is like, oh, somebody's coming coming over. This isn't going to work out. And it, th- that's never the case or almost never the case. I need to be more like Gracie. Would that be awkward if when they walked in the door, I started grabbing shoes with my mouth and throwing them up in the air? <laughs> Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is just a portion of uh, this one, and this is filled out by Octopus Girl. What are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Sometimes I think about how I'd really love to kill myself and then watch how all the people in my life react, or at least the ones who were shitty to me. But I'm a chicken, plus despite regular suicidal ideations and struggling with depression since I was about 11, Uh, I'm now 27. I don't actually want to die. I want to live so badly. Just dot, 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 not like this. Plus, the people who love me and treat me well, I could never hurt them that way. I also really wish I'd cheated on my ex-girlfriend. My partner now was a longtime close friend, and I never did anything with him while I was with her, but she really hated our friendship, and I wished I'd cheated. She thought I was cheating anyway, so I don't regret that I did develop feelings for him while I was still with her. He's the most wonderful person I've ever known, and he's been through some shit himself, and he deserves the love and admiration I feel for him. Darkest Secrets I don't know that I actually have any truly deep, dark secrets anymore. To be honest, uh, I'm a compulsive, I'm a former compulsive shoplifter a habit that grew out of my 22 years and counting struggle with anorexia and bulimia. I began shoplifting laxatives in my teens and eventually just started stealing anything and everything I wanted and figured I could get away with. I don't do it anymore and never will again. But maybe my secret is that is that despite being caught a few times, I don't regret doing it. And to be honest, I really miss shoplifting. I loved the rush and the feeling of doing something bad and getting stuff I wanted for free while other people had to pay. Much like my eating disorder, at one point, it felt like a secret loophole that only I knew about. I get that. I get that one. I think a lot of people do is being caught in that place where the thing that makes us feel most alive is the thing that brings us shame and is degrading our life. It's such a terrible place to be. And I think that's when it's time to ask to ask for help um, because it it can be so easy to stay there. And I've, I've found that recovery has a forward momentum to it and sickness and wounds have a negative momentum to them where it's just, it's like not going to the gym. When you don't go to the gym, you don't feel like going to the gym. But then when you go to the gym, it's easier to go to the gym because you have more energy and I don't know. Who am I kidding? I hate going to the gym. 
This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself, Oops, I Did It Again. Uh, she identifies as straight. Um, uh, and then she puts in uh, parentheses, I kissed a girl and I liked it. Uh, she's in her 60s. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. A male babysitter clumsily tried to finger me at bedtime when I was about seven or eight years old. I remember it as an interesting experience, but I imagine he went on to have problems. It is such an an interesting way to phrase that. It's so, I mean, that sounds like somebody who, uh, you sound like somebody who has really pulled back your perspective on uh, something and can kind of take in the larger picture as a whole. And I'm always impressed when people can kind of separate themselves from their story in a good way, not in a not going to pay attention to it and going to avoid it way, but I don't know if that makes sense. Um, she is not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Until just now, I would only use emotionally neglected. When I think abuse, I imagine someone who had it way worse than I did. Then again, other people aren't filling out a mental illness survey at two in the morning while contemplating childhood. My mother was narcissistic, self-absorbed, highly emotional, and reactive. Oh, by the way, if you get HBO, watch that documentary called uh, The Beauty and the Bloodshed, I think is what it's called, but it's about photographer Nan Golden, and boy, is it good. Uh, it's, it's dark, but um, it is good. Uh, my mother was narcissistic, self-absorbed, highly emotional, and reactive, anxious, and a drinker. I grew up witness to her barbs and jabs, her tantrums and rages, her moods and crying. I learned when to take cover, when to plead mercy, when to entertain, and when to just shut up and shut down. With time and maturity, I can look back and I see a smart, complicated, at times pathetic, often brave woman who did her best even when she didn't or couldn't. I love her still and forever will, which is why she can and did fuck me up royally. She made growing up and becoming an adult really hard. Wow. You are such uh, an empathetic and emotionally wise person that, that, that um, you can hold those seemingly two disparate thoughts at the same time, which I think is so much of life is in that nuance, especially when two seemingly conflicting things are true, but you, you sound uh, like an awesome person. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Absolutely. My mother could be a delight. She liked to have fun. My favorite times were when she and I were alone together, away, or at home during the times when she was emotionally present and in a good mood. Darkest thoughts. I have sexual fantasies I could never act on because they involve myself as a child, but I'm able to act them out in my imagination anytime I want. I don't really feel ashamed of my thoughts, only my actions. I feel ashamed when I hurt other people or when I neglect the things around me. Darkest Secrets I've had three affairs over the course of a 45-year marriage, and I had an abortion when I was 21. 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. They involve me as a child being controlled by an older uh, adult man. The man is a father figure or other male authority. He takes several forms, but the victim slash lucky girl is always me. And in parentheses, I don't get off on objectifying other children. The situations in the fantasies always involve me being incapable of saying no or being at the mercy of the man, and I am always a virgin. There is an infinite variety of situations. In my fantasy, I always toggle between being the girl and being the man. My clit becomes a penis, and I come like a bucking bronco the moment the tip of it touches her sweet, moist vaginal opening. In my fantasy, if my fantasy involves a toddler me, I will usually come thinking about a pink, pinky finger slipping up my hole. When I come, I am always the man. Thank you for sharing that. That A lot of people um, uh, would be uncomfortable not only with having that fantasy, but with voicing it and... Um, I think there can be freedom, if it's appropriate, we're sharing it with an appropriate person, maybe with a therapist, to share the details of something that might be painful or embarrassing, um, because it can be freeing to to let go, step back, and look at that part of ourselves, and um, I don't know, I, I, I think it helps with, uh, with the shame and the, and the self-hatred. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mother that I found my half-sibling she gave up for adoption when she was a teenager. I want her to know that I forgive her for everything. She died in 2016. What, if anything, do you wish for? What I wish for is elusive. I wish I could turn back time with the insights I've gained and tell little kid me not to be afraid to make mistakes, not to be afraid or be angry and to stand up and matter, to take the attention I deserve. What I hope for now is some kind of resolution, some kind of peace, or will peace finally elude me too? Wow, those are such great questions. And I, you know, as I was reading the, you know, the things that you'd like to tell little you, is I wonder if we did have the power to do that, would little us even listen to us? Or, or was the negative self-talk so ingrained in us that it would just roll off our shoulders? I, I don't know. I kind of tend to think that that would be the case. And I don't think I have to worry about this until time machines become affordable. Uh, <laughs> like I'm saying that like they're, they're already here, but they're just out of my price range. Have you shared these things with others? Have I shared items 1 through 14 above with others? Not in so many words, no. Things come out in therapy. I rarely share with friends. Friends can be dangerous. Friends are for sharing the day-to-day, but not the deepest, darkest anything. That always backfires. That has not been the my experience. It has been with some people, but not with all people. It was really in support groups where, where I found the really, really safe people. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sufficiently distracted, less than, less embarrassed, and mildly empowered. I'm glad. I'm glad. That was a great survey. Thank you. Thank you for going so, so deep. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by uh, Big Chug. 
And they write, I love walking my shih tzu. I love how happy and curious he always is. The world seems beautiful and optimistic in his eyes. His ears bounce as he waddles. Then he'll stop and look over his shoulder at me with a big smile. It's so warm and happy. Love it. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Disgusting. So you know this is this one's going to be a brimming feel-good journey into the soul. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, at least two instances. One she reported, the other she never reported it. Uh, she writes, my uncle touched me as a young child and my boss raped me in my 20s. Uh, she's been emotionally abused, not sure about being physically abused. Uh, I won't be giving any info uh, that will redeem. I worry about giving any info uh, because it will reveal my identity about that, about the emotional and physical abuse. Darkest thoughts. I think I may need to take my life. I've done something unforgivable that haunts me every day. It's been two years since I did this horrible unthinkable thing darkest secrets a 16 year old boy was in trouble at my place of work he lived there with his mother and abusive uh, mother's boyfriend cops always getting called etc i felt terrible for him i thought i could possibly rescue him his mother didn't care and i thought i could help him get a place and care for his younger brother i had the best intentions that were genuine fuck we had sex I was 22. He was a virgin. I had been in a manic episode for a while. Fucking dudes left and right. Mind you, I am a lesbian. I am not attracted to men at all. He kept asking to have sex and to cuddle. I didn't feel, I didn't feel comfortable, but eventually we did. Before the sex, I felt we actually had a good bond. He left me something of his and I gave him something of mine before I brought him, quote, home, unquote. He told me to stop being so lonely, to get out there and to find someone to love. He was so much more mature than men I had been seeing who were my age and older, 20 to 60 in age. I thought I liked him. I knew his age, but he seemed so much older. Mind you, the age of consent in this area is 16. It wasn't illegal per se. That's what I keep telling myself. Not long after, my boss stayed late and offered Oh, I guess this is the separate instance. Uh, not long after, or no, maybe this is uh, part of the same thing. Anyway, not long after my boss stayed late and offered to drink my wine with me. I thought we could bond as I was still kind of new. He kept making me drink. He brought me to a supply closet and raped me. He brought me downstairs and raped me then too. We passed people in the elevator. I was so, so drunk. I should have asked for help in that elevator. Looking back, I know I deserved that. It was my karma. You did not deserve that. I try to use my rape to make myself feel better. Wow, that is such a heavy fucking sentence. I try to use my rape to make myself feel better. I already paid my dues, I tell myself, but no, I keep this secret from everyone, my girlfriend especially. I love her so dearly. She wants to marry, but I, uh, but I can't marry her knowing 
what kind of monster I was. I avert my eyes from teens. I don't feel attraction to kids or teens. I know I would never do something like that again, but there is no taking this away. It is done, and I don't know how I'm supposed to live with myself knowing this. I reached out to the 16-year-old last year. He seemed fine and happy to hear from me. Uh, I had to make closure and told him we will never speak again. He was bummed. He asked me for girl advice regarding a girl he was speaking to. I was happy to hear him with someone his age. I don't even know this kid. I fucked up major. I, I will always be his first. What the fuck kind of person does that? Thank you for sharing that. That must be really uh, hard to to verbalize, but you know my overall impression is um, you are punishing yourself in a way that is not helpful to you or others. It clearly is something that went against your moral compass, and some of us do that sometimes. And that is part of life, is doing things that we are ashamed of, you know, reaching for the wrong tool to deal with our pain or discomfort. And um, you sound like a moral person um, who made a mistake and, and now you're in the place where you have to decide, are you going to let it dictate your life? Because it will degrade not only your relationship with your partner, but your relationship with yourself. And you are going to cease being the authentic you. Uh, and that is a shame. That is a shame. Uh, shame as a motherfucker. It is so hard to let go of. And we feel like the only answer to a mistake that we made is to hate ourselves for it. And it is not the answer. You've already made a note to yourself that it's not something you want to do again. Take that in. Forgive yourself and move on. I know that's, that's easy for some guy who never met you to say, but... I don't know, my heart kind of breaks for how much you're you're hating yourself, said the pot to the kettle. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. None really. I have no more sex drive at all. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am so fucking sorry. You probably don't realize it, but that should have never happened. And to my girlfriend, I'm a loser. I'm a fucking monster. Get out now. See? That's exactly what I'm talking about is denying yourself intimacy for the rest of your life. How How is that going to make something, make something, you know, quote unquote, right? I, don't, I know that this is probably all really obvious shit that I'm saying, but... Um, what do you wish for? To take back what I did. I've never done anything so terrible. I can never scrub this off of me. Don't let that define your purpose and your value in life because you have a value. It, it, this is from reading this. You are somebody that despite that action that you regret, you clearly have a conscience and society can benefit from you, but 
you were so wrapped up in hating yourself that that you can't see that. You can't see the good in you. And then finally, this is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves the big one. An answer to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? I used to dislike my frame, if that makes sense. I have a much larger frame than the majority of my family. My sisters and mother are very petite in stature, but my father and myself are tall, quote, big-boned, unquote, and broad-shouldered. My mother used to harp on me about being too fat, in her words, and tried to get me to diet and exercise throughout my teens. She had a specific number in mind for what I should weigh, and I never reached that goal. Both of my sisters were underweight when I was growing up and still are. Their bodies pleased my mother immensely, and I was often compared to them and asked why I wasn't closer to their weight and why I was the big one. Of every woman in my family, I am the only one who eats three meals a day. My sisters and my mother do not really eat in order to keep their weight down. My mother started giving me baby food to eat when I was in high school, and she used to buy me clothes that were smaller than what I was to encourage me to lose weight. My sisters joined in on it and used to call me fat when we got into arguments. And my dad used to criticize me for hanging out with people that he thought were too fat for me, as if that were a reasonable barometer for what makes a good friend to one's son or daughter. I felt so embarrassed by my body that I began to wear shapewear under my clothes to school and even kept it on while running for track and field and while I slept. I used to think that shapewear would permanently alter my body if I wore it long enough. I also used to get on the treadmill after every meal and I remember my great-grandmother opening the door to the room where I was running and shaking her head at me. By then I was determined to reach the goal weight my mother had in mind. I was totally lost and loathed my body, refusing to wear sleeveless tops or shorts in the Florida summer, refusing to wear a bathing suit unless a t-shirt covered me, and refusing to look at my body in the mirror when I left the shower, or refusing to use the locker room at school after track practice. Decades later, I realized I needed to stop trying to lose weight. The realization came after someone tagged me in a photo on Facebook and I saw how skinny I had become. It wasn't the image of a healthy person. I looked like a skeleton. Underneath the photo, my mom commented, keep going, exclamation point. And I knew what she meant. That's when I realized I didn't actually want to look that way. I was just starving myself because my mom had this idea of what my body should look like and I was trying to please her and get her and the rest of my family off my back. Years after that Facebook photo was posted, my parents gave me a whole box of photos from when I was a teen so that I could show them to my future children. I had not looked at these photos before since I always thought I couldn't handle seeing how I was. I waited until I got home to look at them in private. I was amazed to discover, however, that I looked exactly how I look right now. I'm at a healthy weight, and I really like my body today. I look exactly how I looked in the photos of me as a teen. I was shocked 
But this whole time I thought my body was something else entirely because that was what my family told me to see. It was crazy to see myself back then and realize that I wasn't what they said I was. I almost feel grief over it. I could have loved my body this whole time. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Wow, that was, um, was so profound. Well, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. See, this is where having some listener write something for me to wrap it up. I know, at least in my mind, freshen it up a little bit. I don't know, or maybe you like the thanks for listening, you're not alone Am I, in, am I in second guess mode right now? Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview and the surveys. And uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And uh, nothing degrades the quality of our life like obsessing about the quality of our life. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.